Colossians 2, 8 through 23. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the world, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh with the circumcision of Christ have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This set aside, nailing it to the cross, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them and him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to these things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. As you can see, we're continuing our series, the book of Colossians, first things first. One of the reasons I am convinced and convicted that it is better for us to most often walk through entire books of the Bible is because it means I have to preach it all. It means that when those hard passages come up, I just can't skip them. Skip them. We have to deal with them and we have to confront them. And this morning is one of those passages. Like you often see in front, uh, when, you, when you maybe watch TV or a movie, you'll see a rating pop up or a uh, warning. There is violent content, you know, in this thing. I'm giving a little sermon content warning. Not so much content as a step on your toes warning. This message will most likely step on your toes. This message will probably hit you between the eyes. You probably won't like a, wa a lot of what this text has to say to us this morning, and that's okay because that's the Bible's job. The Bible's job is to take fallen, depraved sinners like you and me and mold us into the image of Jesus. We don't mold the Bible, the, the Bible molds us. So this morning as we walk through this together, if you get a little offended, I want you to know that I love you, that I'm for you. And I have to preach this one because it's in the Bible, but my goal this morning is not to offend you, but to see you become more like Jesus. So as we walk through this difficult text this morning, let's pray that the Lord would use it to sharpen and conform our hearts. Jesus, use this this morning. Make much of yourself in your word. Change us. 
conform us to the image of Jesus. And as we wrestle through these hard things, we pray you'd give us the grace to receive them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Paul writes this section of his letter to give a warning to the church. A warning that there are people in the church that have really good intentions. But if they follow these people, if they follow the advice of these people, that it will destroy them and destroy their church. And by destroy them, I don't mean that the church would shut down. I don't mean that the church would die. No, it's much worse than that. You see, the church would remain. The church might even grow. But if they follow these people, the church might look like a church. It might sound like a church. But in fact, it would no longer be Jesus' church. It would be theirs. You see, what if I told you this morning that it was possible for a church to grow and yet have serious problems? What if I told you it was possible for a church to look healthy, to look to be taking Christianity really, really serious, and yet be far off from the church Jesus wants it to be? See, the warning Paul gives the Colossians 2,000 years ago applies to us today. It's a warning that we need to hear again and again and again. It's a warning we need to hear today, to be reminded of today. Because every one of us in this room has the potential to struggle with this in some area of our life. So what is this warning that Paul has for them and for us? Legalism. Legalism will destroy you and destroy churches. So let's walk through this passage and zoom in and figure out what exactly legalism is and why it is so harmful to the church. Notice verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you and questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, in Colossae, there were these people. Most believed to be a, a group called the Gnostics. But whoever they were, they believed, and they were telling everyone else that if you really loved Jesus, if you really wanted to follow him rightly, if you wanted to be close to Jesus, you had to do these other things. You see, faith, repentance, and grace were not enough for these people. No, you had to do a little more. For example, notice verse 16 when he says, food and drink. Don't let anyone judge you because of food and drink. This isn't referring to Jewish dietary laws, which is often the case, right? It's often they're trying to become Jewish. They want them to be more Jewish. But that's not the case here because there are no Jewish laws against what you can or cannot drink. No, they were teaching that it was more holy to make yourself go without. To be like a monk who purged themselves of desire and to go without things. They were teaching that if you wanted to be closer to God, you must abstain from eating meat and drinking alcohol. They were saying, if you really want to take your faith seriously, you wouldn't drink alcohol at all ever, and you would never ever eat meat. That self-denial of those things was a holy cause. That telling your body's cravings for a big, juicy hamburger from Five Star. Telling your craving no was what you ought to do. Now, hear, hear me say, what they're not saying is, man, guys, if you try the new Col the Colossae 5, you know, five days no wine, five days no meat, and I've lost five pounds, you should try it too. Right, that's not what they're saying. This, this isn't about their, uh, just something that they think you ought to try. They're not coming at this as their preference 
or something that they think is wise to do. They are saying everyone ought to do this. That this is what real Christianity looks like. This is what people who take Christianity seriously do. Everyone should do this. Let me give you an example of what this looks like kind of outside of the church. Millennials get a bad rap for a lot of things. All right? And one of those things is because of social media and and everyone has an opinion about everything, when you see new moms have their new sweet little baby and they're trying to figure everything out, they get blasted with, well, if you don't breastfeed, you're doing it wrong. Well, if you don't have cloth diapers, you're a failure. Well, if you don't, uh, if you're for night lights, you're going to ruin their brain. You know, and it's just all of this stuff again and again. And these moms who, their kids aren't sleeping through the night or, 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 or they've tried to breastfeed and can't do it. And they just feel like failures because everyone else is telling them that this is the way it's got to be done. It's not, you know, we tried this and this worked. And I heard, you know, so-and-so told me that they did this and that worked. You should try that. Maybe that'll work. It's not that. It's, it's no. If you don't do this, you're a failure. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That is exactly what these people in Colossae are saying. It's not just their thing or their preference or what they like. It's not just works for them. They're saying, no, this is what everyone should do. But notice how Paul tells them to respond to this. He says, let no one pass judgment on you. I have, I, I can't, I have a hard time reading that without thinking of like him saying it kind of in this ghetto tone. Like, don't judge me. But he's saying, who cares what these crazy people are saying? Don't take them seriously. Don't let them judge you. You see, here's the thing. Paul is rejecting the right of anyone else to judge or compel or make me do anything or comply with anything that's your preference or opinion. You see, no one gets to tell anyone else what they ought or ought not do unless it is super clear in the Bible. So you can tell people not to lie. You can tell people not to murder. Those things are clear in the Bible. But let's see where this hits home a little bit. Let's look at this text and because there's a, there's a part here that's going to hit home with us a little bit more. And I hope you're ready. He mentions food or drink. You see, even then there were people suggesting that it was more holy to totally abstain from alcohol than to drink in responsible moderation. They would have said, real Christians, Christians who take their faith seriously, should never drink. Drinking is evil, it is sinful. It's like playing cards. But let's put our cards on the table. There are many of you in this room, and you drink. And you hide it. There's many of you in this room and you drink and you hide it. You keep it a secret. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I was told the story about we had these two guys, older men in our church who had been in the church a long time. And, and they were sitting out on their porch one afternoon and, and both, of them, both of them were sitting there drinking a beer together. And they had been deacons in the past and, and uh, they were sitting there kind of a backcountry road and off in the distance, they saw uh, a little blue car coming down the road, and they were like, that looks like the preacher's car. And as it got closer and closer, and they're, they kind of were holding their breath a little bit, and their heart began to beat a little bit, well, I'm not sure what we're going to do as we're sitting here drinking these beers, and the preacher might roll in. 
But as the car got closer and went on by, they realized it wasn't the preacher and they were okay. But one of the guys looked to the, to the other guy and he said, what would you have done if that, if that was the preacher that pulled in here? And he said, I wouldn't have done anything, but you'd have been drinking two beers. <laughs> Why did he react that way? That's a true story. Because for so long, we have been taught that all drinking is sinful. Not just that some see it as unwise, but that it's wrong. And that you can't be a Christian and drink at all. And so what's happened? You would think that because churches have taught that for so long, that, that our stance on alcohol has been no alcohol whatsoever for so long, you would think that that would have led to people stopped drinking. But instead, it has simply led to Christians drinking and lying about it, hiding it, and feeling guilty about it in private. You see, the Bible never condemns alcohol. Never once does it command us not to drink it. In fact, the opposite, opposite is true. Jesus rolls up at a party, and he makes the best wine of the party, and he passes it out. And it's not grape juice. It's strong. Paul tells his disciple Timothy to drink wine to help his stomach. The Bible doesn't condemn alcohol, but let's be clear what it does condemn. It condemns drunkenness. No one should be getting drunk, period, the end. That is clear. That is black and white. But what we have done is taken the safe approach. We have taken other people's convictions, which are fine to have those convictions, that moderation isn't possible, that alcohol is too often abused, that it's safer to abstain. And we've said that instead of moderation, everyone should follow our rules on alcohol. They're not biblical, but it's for the best. That, my friends, is legalism. Legalism does not change hearts. Legalism does not change behavior. It simply makes you hide what you're doing and feel guilty about it in private. So what does this mean for us? It means that we follow what the Bible says. And so if alcohol is too dangerous for you and you would rather stay away from it, that is totally fine, totally acceptable. That's great. The Bible says no one can judge you for that. But what you can't do is force your view on someone else. And if you want to drink and not get drunk, if you can do it with wisdom and discernment and moderation, you don't need to feel guilty about it. You don't need to hide it because Paul says no one can judge you for that. Do you know why it's easier for churches to be legalistic? Because it's safe. It's easier for us to make rules because it's safe. When you make lots of rules and force people to follow them, you don't have any issues. There's no problems. There's no mess. But guys, Jesus isn't safe. Jesus isn't safe. He comes to shatter our categories. He comes to challenge our traditions. He comes to break our rules. At every turn, Jesus went to the religious guys, the Pharisees, and he made them mad because he broke their rules. He broke the religious guy's rules. And do you know what they eventually did? They killed him. They killed the Son of God because the Son of God broke their religious rules. May that never be us. It's amazing that we can read these gospel accounts of Jesus. We can see Jesus stick it to the religious people again and again and again for all the rules that they've made. 
And yet we can so easily become rule-making Pharisees ourselves. But notice what happens next. Verse 17. It says, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, these people in Colossae were also telling them how they had to worship. They were telling them that they had to keep all these old Jewish traditions. That this way of worshiping was more honoring to God. That this was more reverent, more holy. That this is how it ought to be done. This is how you should do church. So how does this form of legalism take shape today? If you say or think, I can't worship in less blank. It's legalism. I can't worship unless the music is really loud and really cool and there's fog machines and the drums are banging. I can't worship unless that stuff. That's legalism. Which I get. When I, w- I remember when I was a youth pastor, we were singing in worship and I remember singing this song. I don't know what song it was. It was a good song and I was like into it, singing, yes, Jesus, hurrah, woohoo, Jesus, love you. We're singing this song, and we transition from that great song to this hymn. Now, I love hymns, but some of the hymns that kind of I don't love are the ones that you could do this to. They're kind of like these merry-go-round tunes, and the words are good, but the music irritates me. And so I'm singing this song, and then we go to this, like this hymn, and it just like got me out of the mood. I'm like, oh my gosh, ugh. And I'm standing there like, did we really pick that? Like, we just messed up the whole flow. Why did we do that? And like right there in that moment, God was just like, that was not planned. (laughs) But it felt like that. Because I could clear as day, God tell me, say, this is not about you. It's about me. And I don't care what they're singing, you better sing it. Because it's about me. Him, not me. It doesn't matter if it's new or old, cool or lame. If it's about him, then I'm commanded to sing it. And if you love him, you will praise him no matter what we sing. This is an issue for my generation. For your generation. Right here. Because every year I'll go to youth camp and I'll see youth sing these songs with hands lifted high and tears running down their face, worshiping Jesus with everything that they have until next week when they come back next Sunday and they are more interested in what they're having for lunch or what's happening on their phone than what we're doing here. And it doesn't connect for me, it doesn't make sense because it's the same God at camp that it is here and so what's the difference? If you say, I can't worship unless we sing the old songs, might be a legalist. You say, I can't worship unless there's stained glass or flowers on the stage, you might be a legalist. I can't worship unless we have hymnals. I can't worship unless there's an organ. I can't worship unless there's drums or a guitar. I can't worship unless the preacher's wearing a suit. Verse 17 says there is a, that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, all of these things, the music, everything in this room is meant to lead you to Jesus. 
But what happens is we stop on the thing, we get fixed on the thing, and not the substance. We're more worried about what's not up here, or what we're not singing, than who we're singing to. They are not the substance. They're, they are a means by which we get to the substance. They are but the boat that takes us to the eternal shore. When we elevate the vehicle as the destination, we find ourselves in trouble. Because when we are legalistic, we lose our joy. We fight with each other over which preference is more holy. All the while, we miss Jesus. This became real for me when I was sitting in a deacon's meeting and one of our deacons was upset with us, upset with me. And he said, we, we had baptized this little girl that morning. It was a great story. And she came to faith and we baptized her. And, and he in the deacon's meeting says to me, well, I just can't believe we're not being biblical anymore. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, she didn't walk the aisle. Well, no, but she came to me at whatever point, and we talked, and she came, and she prayed, and she received the Lord, and so we baptized her. Yeah, but she didn't walk the aisle. Well, show me in the Bible where it says walk the aisle. You see, he was so mad that her salvation story didn't look like what he thought it ought to look like, that he missed out on what God was doing. He missed out what God was doing right in front of him. You see, legalism steals our joy. Legalism makes us miss the work Jesus is doing right in front of us. Legalism destroys churches. And legalism divides us. We've got a lot of different personalities in this room, a lot of different generations in this room, a lot of different traditions in this room, and we become legalistic over our preferences that divides us. It creates a guilt and shame where there shouldn't be any guilt and shame. It creates elitism and pride that we feel like we're better than other people because of our views. And it alienates people who don't look the part. It destroys churches and it destroys us. Notice what Paul says next in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to the things that all perish as they were used according to human precepts and teaching. I remember <coughs> I remember my mentor when I was in high school say to me one night, I told him we were going to the movies with some friends and we were going to go see one of them rom-coms, some romantic comedies. I have no idea which one it was. And he said, I can't believe you're going to go see that movie. I was like, what do you mean? It's like, I can't believe you would support that. You're going to see that movie and everyone else is going to think that you support those things. What are you talking about? It's a rated PG-13. I don't even know what it was about. All the friends wanted to go. And he, get, he laid this guilt trip on me. Because by my going to see this movie, it was going to, I don't know, make everybody feel like I supported whatever happened in the movie. Should Christians boycott all movies and entertainment that has sin in it? I sure hope not because we ain't watching anything. And I like TV. Should Christians watch everything that's ever been made? Probably not. But what we watch and what we don't watch is typically personal wisdom decisions. Let me give you an example. 17 years ago, a movie came out that caused waves in the Christian community. 
a movie that caused great controversy, caused Christians to boycott, caused people to fight and get angry at one another, a movie that people left their churches if their pastor would not speak out against the movie. This movie caused great concern for many Christians, and for other Christians, it became one of their all-time favorites. What was the scandalous movie? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. For some, it was how could you watch something of the occult? Your kids are going to become witches. For others, it was a great tale of good versus evil, of right and wrong, of growing up and having courage. Legalism says, you must conform to my understanding of right and wrong, and if you don't, you're in sin. If you don't see things my way, the, the right way, the biblical way, then you're in sin. But don't you see how legalism stirs up a haughty pride in us? Man, I know that I am guilty of it. I know that I can be so convinced that this or that is the right way to do something. It's the right court of action in certain situations. And when other people don't do what I think they ought to do, it's so easy for me to look down my nose at them and go, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? And it creates an arrogance in me that the Lord has to come down later and humble me over. Jesus said in Mark 7, 8, you teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. That should cause pause in us. You teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. That's what legalism is. Taking ideas, taking preferences, traditions that are not biblical. Not that traditions and ideas or preferences are bad. Often, traditions and ideas and preferences are good but making them the rule or the law that everyone else must follow gets us in trouble. For example, my buddy was telling me when he was growing up in youth group, he had invited uh, a friend from school to come to youth group with him. And she came to youth group, and she'd been coming for months. She wasn't a believer, but she was enjoying church, and she was uh, getting closer and thinking about coming to faith. And about a month in at the business meeting, they were there, and a lady stands up and looks to the pastor moderating the business meeting, and she says, I've noticed we've got some, some girls in our youth group wearing pants. And I thought we was going to be a biblical church. I thought we was going to be a church that stood on the Bible. And she went on and on to, Pastor, what are you going to do about it? And my buddy, 16 years old, stood up, and he said, where is that in the Bible? And she said, I don't know, but I know it's in there somewhere. teaching human traditions as if they were the word of God. When we take our traditions and our cultural values, our cultural values and our preferences, and we elevate them as equal to the word of God, we destroy people's lives. Because it, it breaks my heart because, because when I was 16 years old going to church and my family was not going to church, and I would plead, Mom and Dad, come to church with me. And, and, and they would be, okay, son, we'll go with you on Sunday. And they would go to their closet and be getting ready. And then the next morning, I'd be like, are y'all ready to go? My mom would look at me and say, son, I can't go. I have nothing to wear. What do you mean? You have a closet full of clothes. No one cares what you wear. Brent, just don't worry about it. I've got nothing to wear. I can't go. Let it never be the case. Someone doesn't come here because they think they need to wear something. Amen? That's legalism, and it keeps people from Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't care what any of us in this room put on. Like at all. Not even a little. At all. This is going to offend you. He doesn't care if you wear flip-flops. But it's too cold today. I'd be offended if you wore flip-flops because it's too cold. The only thing Jesus cares about is whether or not you're clothed in his righteousness. He doesn't care what you wear. He doesn't care what I wear up here. Paul warns the Colossians of legalism because it will destroy us. Ten things. It makes you prideful and arrogant. It makes you feel superior to everyone else. It makes you feel like you can control God because you've done the things right. It steals your joy because you're always working to live up to your own standards and your work is never finished and so you never get to rest. It's exhausting. It robs you of community and friendship because no one will ever trust you with their struggles and therefore you never really know anyone. It causes division. It's exhausting and discouraging because your standing before God is never secure. It unnecessarily hurts people and alienates people, and it keeps you from the thing you need the most, grace. See, the only way to fight legalism is with the gospel, because at the center of the gospel is grace. Grace is the only weapon we have against legalism. Grace is the natural enemy to our human desires, because, guys, our hearts are programmed to love rules, to love laws. They keep us safe. They help us feel in control. They help us keep things that the way they are and not to change. But when Paul writes this, he sandwiches the warning between the gospel. He shares the gospel, he gives the warning, and he comes back to the gospel. Why? Because he wants us to know that grace is the only answer. 11 through 15, he shares the gospel. I'm running out of time. I'm going to skip it. We naturally resist grace because grace says you're messed up. We resist grace because grace says you are a failure and you need something. That you can't be holy on your own merit. Grace says you literally contribute nothing to your salvation. God did everything. He did it. You were dead. He made you alive. He disarmed the devil. He nailed your sins to the cross. And guys, this is good news because you've been set free. You don't have to live in shame and guilt for your failure anymore. You don't have to work your tail off to get God to love you. Grace reminds us that every one of us in this room, no matter what our past is, we are in the same boat. We are jacked up. We are failures, but have received grace upon grace upon grace because God loves us, because we were so sinful that Christ had to die, but so loved that he was glad to. You are right with God and have favor with God, and you didn't lift a finger. You see, we see in the Bible over and over again that God gives grace to people who don't ask for it, don't deserve it, and don't appreciate it once they have it, and yet still God gives it freely. And so when legalism bears its ugly head in your heart, when you begin to feel superior to others, when you get proud, and when you look down on those who are not where you're at, remember that old hymn, that was a grace that brought you safe this far, and grace will lead you home. Fellowship, since I've been here, I have only known you to be a gracious and kind people. I don't preach this message because I see this as some rapid issue in our church. I preach it because it was in the text this morning. I preach it because I know that this warning I need in my own heart. 
I know how prone I am to be proud and think I am better than others, how my way is the right way, and I need grace daily to keep me from having that spirit. And I know the same struggle is in many of you. And the only cure is to remember how much you need his grace every day. You see, every church has a reputation. Every church gets talked about in the community. And it's not always accurate what they say about churches. It's not always accurate what they say about our church. Sometimes people get a bad taste in their mouth, sometimes ne- negative situation, whatever. But when people talk about fellowship, what do they say? When people in the community who don't go here talk about our church, what do they say? My goal is to lead us to be the kind of church that when people talk about us, they say, man, those people can't get enough of Jesus. Man, I have never seen a church so full of people who know how broken they are and love and care for and are gracious to everyone who walks in their door. No matter what they look like, sound like, or what their past is. Jesus doesn't want us to be a come as you are, but don't stay that way for long kind of church. Jesus wants us to be a church that looks like heaven. Full of rich people and poor people. Popular people and nerdy people. White people, and we need some more black people. Old people and young people. Jesus wants us to have all kinds of people from all walks of life. And when that happens, we will see that everyone's not like us. That they're different. And we will need grace to crush our legalism. Jesus doesn't want us to be the church who who does everything out of duty. Because Jesus doesn't want us thinking that we can follow the rules well enough to deserve him. Jesus wants us to be a church who gladly serves him out of gratitude and love for him. Not a church who gives money because that's what you're supposed to do. But a church who is radically generous with our money. Not because we think we have to or because it makes God owe us. But because we're so overwhelmed by grace and the beauty of Jesus that we radically give. Not a church who sings hymns to keep the old people happy but a church who loves our grandparents, a church who recognizes that we stand on their shoulders, that we have great, that they have great wisdom and that there must be something to these hymns they love so much and so let's sing them together just as passionately as we sing at youth camp. Not a church who comes wearing our Sunday best, but a church who comes clothed in Christ. See, verse 19 really sums it up. They were not holding fast to Christ But church family, if we all come together and hold fast to Jesus, then God will use us to do amazing things for his kingdom. And so let's put everything else to death and seek Jesus together. There may be some of you in this room and you have been trusting in your own abilities. You have been trusting in your own ability to be good and to work and to keep up the the Christian status quo. And you realize that you aren't able to do that. And you need grace, unmerited favor. You need favor before God that you don't have to do anything. And he offers it to you freely this morning. You can stop working. You can stop being exhausted. You can stop trying to keep up the illusion that you got your life together. And come say, Jesus, give me mercy and grace because I need it. Some of you in this room have been living in such great shame and guilt over a rule that you thought you had to keep. But you can live in the freedom that Christ has given you. And when you do actually fail, remember there is grace upon grace. There's some of you in this room that you fight legalism in your heart all the time. I want you to know that you're not alone. That that is your heart's natural state. 
we must remember grace together. We are all in this together. So together, let's sing about the amazing grace of God. If you're here this morning and you would like to be prayed with, I would love to pray with you or talk with you. If you don't know this grace, you've been following rules all your life, come, let me share grace with you. It's amazing. Our deacons will be up here. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you. If you'd like to come kneel at these steps and pray, I'd love for you to do that. Let's do it together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. God, this was a difficult message this morning, and we pray that you would help us to receive it with grace. God, if this text got all up in our Wheaties, and it's hard to digest, hard to handle, we pray that you give us the grace to, to think through it and to wrestle through it and to lay down our thoughts and submit to your word. But God, if there's someone here this morning who thinks church attendance is going to save them from hell, who thinks being a good person is going to save them from hell, who thinks following the rules is going to save them from hell because they feel like they're a good person, it's not. God showed them this morning it's not going to save them. But they need your grace. Grace alone can save them. Give them the courage to come forward this morning to receive that grace. God, move amongst your people how you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us.